My name is Christy, and uh, I struggle with codependency. My name is Mike, and uh, I was trapped and struggling in substance abuse and pornography, control, and selfishness. I grew up with an alcoholic in my family, and the effect it had on me is um, I grew up with a lot of fear and um, trying to fix things and carry the way of the world on my shoulders. And I also realized that I was leading my uh, then at the time five-year-old son down a path of destruction which devastated me. Um, there was a lot of anxiety that went with it, a lot of, a lot of fear and guilt because I thought it was my fault. My moment of clarity uh, came from a really nasty breakup, a failed relationship which had become a pattern in my life. Um, I think the clarity came when one day I did realize that I couldn't help them, I couldn't even fix them, <laughs> there was nothing I could do, and that um, it wasn't my fault. And so uh, now I have become unstuck by giving God the control. Uh, I'm now married, substance free, and Jesus is giving me victory and shaping me into a husband and a great father for two eight-year-old boys. Uh, the reason I came to celebrate recovery is a friend asked me to go that knew what I was dealing with. Um, and it was awesome because the first person I met walked a similar path to me. And I realized that there was healing involved, that you know, if you work these steps and you do what the program tells you, that it's really freeing. Um, I didn't have to be in control anymore. That's God's job. And um, that CRs for anybody with a hurt habit or hang up, it's not just about the addict. It's also about those of us that have had to deal with the effects of living with an alcoholic. Well, good morning, Overlake. It's wonderful to be with you. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. You'll see we're beginning a series today called Unstuck. And I'm very, very excited about this series. I, I really am. Uh, I, I want to kind of prep you that I believe this will be kind of a landmark event in the life of our church, hopefully in your life. I believe this is absolutely possible. Uh, you know, you're going to be out in the region, the community, and people are going to go, oh, you go to Overlake, that church that's serious about being vulnerable and real and authentic in their journey with Jesus. And you'd be like, yep, that's my church, you know. And I'm very excited about that. There are five weeks in this series. We just want to show you where we're going. Kind of the roadmap is today, we'll talk about getting honest. Next week, we're going to unpack more hope. Um, really real is week three, letting go week four and growing uh, week five. And I, 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 if I can do this... I, I want to encourage you to come to all five weeks. It, it, there really will be a powerful movement as we go through this idea of being real and inviting Jesus into our brokenness. And it, it will require all five weeks. If you just come to this week, you miss the next couple, you're going you're gonna to be kind of left out of, of the journey. And I don't want that for anyone. So that's the first thing. Second thing. I was noticing in my preparation this week that it feels like I keep cycling and recycling back to this idea of becoming unstuck. And I realize it's because I still sense that there are areas in my life where there is stuckness. 
And I just want to say, as we say this all the time, no perfect people allowed, but you just need to know that if you had to be perfect to preach, there'd be no preachers, okay? And so I, I just want you to know I'm, I'm preaching to myself. In fact, I don't even want to be a preacher uh, in this series. I just want to be an encourager. I want to encourage you and your faith. I want to be encouraged by your faith and my own journey. And let's encourage one another to be real and to be humble and authentic as we journey with Jesus. And so I do want to let you know that in effort of, of being kind of this humble and transparent uh, guy, I'm going to be sharing my full testimony at Celebrate Recovery this Tuesday night. And I, I did this before a couple of years ago. And if you are just, you're interested in seeing just how much of a knucklehead your pastor is, come on Tuesday night and you can uh, hear sort of the full testimony. And I just want you to understand, you know, uh, it's it, it's not something that I want to record or broadcast, but it's just a way for me to authentically walk a road of saying, look, I am, I'm just a, a messed up, a lost guy whom Jesus crashed into my life and he rearranged my life. And, and so I've been stumbling after him with feet of clay and a heart on fire ever since. And uh, that's, that's kind of what it's all about. So, so if you want to join us on Tuesday night, love to have you there. So, uh, I've been at Overlake for seven years, coming up a couple months, it'll be seven years. In that time, we have used this mantra again and again and again, no perfect people allowed. Right? I don't know if you've ever thought of that. No perfect people allowed. You're like, what are they checking IDs at the door? Uh, is it perfect driving record? How, how do they, how do they determine? It, it, it's just this, that, that we just want to end the pretense, right? None of us are perfect. If you think you're perfect and you've got to have a perfect church, you can go out and you can Google all the churches and you can visit all the churches and you might find one that's perfect and you might go to that church and you might be tempted to join. Don't do it. Because the moment you join it, it will not be perfect because you're not perfect, right? You join that church, you're going to screw it up. So don't do it. So, I, I'm just saying that this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a facade, right? It's a pretense that Christians have it all together, that, that they're perfect. We call that pretense churchianity. Right? It's just, it's this pretense that, that, that churchianity, that, that everyone's got it all together. And, and, and if we just know the right phrases, if we know the right sort of theological terms, if we just dress the right way or something, that nobody will see through the facade to the fact that we really are struggling. And we're really hurting and that there's places in our life that are still messed up. And, and, and I just say all this because sometimes church can be a very intimidating place to be. Right? I'll just give you by means of example. I went with a buddy of mine to Gold's Gym once. <laughs> once. I went. And this was a number of years ago in Southern California. And we go in and instantly I knew that I was out of my league. Right? Everyone there looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right? Even the women. They, they were... They were Everyone was bronzed and buffed out and they had the gap in the teeth and the German accent. And I just knew I was, I was in the wrong place. And, and so I just kind of meekly make my way over to the pink weights in the corner. And I, I begin to work out and I look in the mirror and I realize someone had replaced my biceps with those of a third grade girl. And I was in the wrong gym. I mean, this gym was for the big dogs and I wasn't even a dog. I was like a poodle. Uh, which science tells us is mostly rodent. And so I, 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 I decided, you know what? I'm not going to work out uh, in this kind of a direction. I'm going to stick to wrestling 
on the floor with my kids and surfing, mostly the internet. Okay, like that's, that's where I keep it. And, uh, and I wonder though, sometimes, I just wonder what it might be like in a spiritual context. Like how many times does somebody come to church because they're interested in God or maybe they're hurting and, and they, they come into church and suddenly everything they see is intimidating, right? They, they just, they look around, they go, oh, I, I can't measure up. Right? They hear from the pastor, and here's a guy who apparently has never struggled with a sin issue in his entire life, ever since he accepted Christ at the age of four, right? when he repented of making a frowny face when his mom asked him to finish his milk. Right? Like That was his whole faith story, and they go, oh, I can't relate. And they look around, and they see everybody dressed to the nines, and they all drive a paid-for Volvo, and they vote with a clear conscience, and they probably have these kids that smile demurely out of homes, out of better homes and gardens. Better than whose home, by the way? Mine. That's the answer. You guys, I don't know if you know me, but it's pretty messy on this side of, uh, of life that I've got three kids they are all in elementary school and they've all got neighborhood friends. We're involved in multiple sports and, and uh, my house is constantly in a state of disarray, like DEFCON 5 kind of stuff. We've got a dog, but we don't mention him. We try not to. It's just, it's cr- my kids, they're not demure. If you know my kids, you know this. They tend to tackle demure kids, Right? <laughs> And, and it's just messy on this side of the equation. And, and friends, if we had to be perfect to make this thing work, we couldn't participate, right? Uh, the Howertons couldn't be a part of that kind of a paradigm. And, and so I think it's very important for us to explode the myth that Christians have it all together or that it's just so clean on this side or, or that our testimonies are so black and white. I once was this and now I'm this and there's no process in the middle. And so I just, I want you to understand that what we're going to go after in this series is it's very vulnerable and it's very real and it's going to require that we wrestle and we examine where we are on our faith journey. Because the reality is that we are all a mess. Somewhere in your life, you're a mess, right? And I'm a mess. We've got these behavior problems. And they might be problems that are pretty easy to see, like alcohol, you know, abuse or depression or overeating, anger, rage, pornography, cutting, drugs, gambling, unhealthy relationships, um, shopping or spending, sports center addictions. A lot of the guys in the room just went, ooh, he went too low. That's that's below the belt, right? And, and, and the reality of all of these is that so often the behaviors themselves aren't the real problem. They're just symptomatic of a deeper problem that's underneath the surface. And some of you here right now, you're feeling a little smug because you're thinking about that list I just read. You think, oh, you know what, Mike, I don't have any of those problems. Friends, did you know that there are all sorts of other less obvious tendencies we have that are just as broken? For example, the issue of control, right? Your life feels out of control, so you grab on hard and you do your very best to strangle the unpredictability out of it. Or maybe for you, the issue is codependency. And unless your significant other, unless you're in a relationship... Or unless your significant other is happy with you or happy with life, you're a total mess. Because your entire well-being is built upon another person. Or maybe for you it's going passive. 
just going limp in life. I see this with guys all the time. It's just the whatever you want, dear. Yes, dear. Just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it, dear. Right? And never stepping up. Never becoming the person that God has designed for you to be. Never going proactive with anything. Career or parenting or managing your home. Being a foundation your family can depend on. See, all these things. And there are many, many more are just as broken. And, and again, they're, they're not the problem. The problem's underneath. And so I would ask, what is the problem underneath all these symptoms? Is it sin? Well, sure, yeah. Is it just our depravity that our natures are fallen and, and have been ever since we entered a fallen world? Yeah, sure. And, and isn't it helpful for me to tell you today that your problem is sin, right? You came to church, you heard that your problem is sin, you want your morning back, okay? Now, it's true, right? Sin is the problem, but answering that question with sin is a bit like answering the question, where do you live, with the answer, I live in the Milky Way, right? It's true. Yeah, absolutely, it's true. You live in the Milky Way, but there is a more precise way to answer that question, right? And there is a more precise way to answer the question, what's going on underneath the surface? So there's a one-word answer, and if you want to write this, it's not a fill-in. It's probably the only word that I didn't do a fill-in today, but if you want to write this word in the margin, it's the word pain. Pain. That's our problem. We hurt. We hurt underneath, and we hate hurting. And so we do all this stuff. We go after all this stuff. We pursue all this stuff. Why? Because we want to mitigate our pain. We want to alleviate our pain. We want to grab and, and scramble to hold on to any pain relief medication we possibly can in this world where we hurt. And John Eldridge talks about this very clearly. He talks about father wounds and mother wounds that we've endured by our well-meaning parents. And he talks about how difficult that is because at, at, at deep levels in our psyche, we have been wounded by arrows that have pierced us. And they have left us bleeding. And we didn't understand what was going on at the time. We didn't have anyone to talk to. Because our most trusted people in our lives were the ones that were causing us this deep pain. We didn't know how to deal with it. And so we, we do all of these tendencies. We go after all these coping mechanisms to alleviate the pain. A guy named Jerry Sitzer in a book that I think is the best book I've read in a decade called A Grace Disguised, articulates this exact same truth. Although what he says is it's loss that pushes the bruise in our life. And he defines loss very clearly and the grief that it causes. And it could be many, many things. He talks about how loss is very evidently caused by the loss of a loved one. And Jerry Sitzer, his story is what caused him to explore this topic is in a single day, he lost his mother and his wife and his four-year-old daughter in a car accident. And it just rocked his world. So yeah, he talks about loss very clearly and articulately. But he also defines it in broader strokes. He says loss can be caused by health struggles. Loss can be caused by relational splits, by career disappointments, by natural disasters, and by other uncontrollable circumstances in our lives. He identifies all the same sin tendencies as simply faulty attempts to avoid pain. 
And friends, this is why we have grief groups at Overlake Christian Church. Because in acute grief, we need support and care so we don't isolate and fall prey to all of those coping mechanisms. Now, some of you, you can look back across the length of your life and you can see moments which were uh, very clear to identify. This was a moment when I was wounded deeply. This is a moment when the arrow went in and it caused incredible pain. And I look at my life and I can see a couple of different times. Uh, when I was five years old, the neighborhood boys that were older than me took me into, there was this like a abandoned tree fort and they introduced me at five to pornography. And I can easily see that's a moment where the arrow went in. When I was 13 years old, I was at a sleepover and I woke up to a trusted youth leader molesting me. That's a moment when the arrow went in. I can point to that, right? You can put it on a calendar. That's when that happened. Some of you have those experiences. Others of you also have this experience where you can't point to a moment. You just were wounded in little ways over the course of an entire fallen lifetime. And so for me, when I look at my life, I can't put it on a calendar. The day that I first believed the lie that... I was responsible for my father's rage, that it was my fault. I can't put it on a calendar the day that I believed the lie that, that if I could just step lightly enough on the eggshells in my home, that I was responsible for a peaceful household. I, I can't articulate the moment when I internalized the lie that I didn't have what it takes, that I'm all alone in this world, that I can't really trust anyone with my secrets. And many of you are in that same situation. There are not the big moments in your life, just little wounds inflicted again and again and again over the course of your life. And so you've learned to manage your pain with certain tactics. And I want to call these in your life, I want to call them sin tendencies, okay? I'm trying to come up with a phrase that's big enough, sin tendencies. Now, some of you, you have no problems saying, no, no, they're not sin tendencies, they're addictions, Mike. I'm calling them what they are. I'm addicted to these. I keep coming back to them again and again and again. I, I just, I know their addictions. And fine, if that's where you are, that's, that's great. You're, thanks for being honest. But for others of you, you're thinking, you know what? I'm not ready to call them addictions. They're just behaviors, right? They're just medications that I come back to again and again and again. But I can stop anytime I want. <laughs> that's no, no problem with that. That's, uh, no, I just don't want to stop because I, uh, you know, uh, I, but, you know, not a, okay, addictions, right? So, uh, but the idea is I don't really care. Pastor Mike doesn't care what you call him. You could call them addictions. You can call them sin tendencies. You can call them coping mechanisms or medications or just temptations. The point isn't what you call these things. The point is we've all got them, right? And here's what it means. It means from time to time, we trust in them. We look to them to alleviate our pain. We cry out to them and we ask them to take care of our pain problem. And those things aren't Jesus. And since those things aren't Jesus, what the Bible talks about it as, the Bible uses the word idolatry. It says those things are idols in your life. And we never think like this, but the, that's where this whole thing goes. And so, again, I'm trying to paint a picture really, really broad stroke that's including everyone in the room. 
Because some of you are thinking, Mike, none of the stuff you say, it's not even making sense to me, but you don't know why chocolate has such a hold on you, right? Some of you, you just, you don't understand. You're like, Mike, none of this, none of this makes any sense to me, but you don't understand why every night at 1130, you go down and raid the fridge. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I just, I don't see how this works, but every time you have one glass of wine, it turns into four. Some of you, it's, it's, it's like a cause maybe or a, a, a passion. You don't understand why you get so enraged about politics. Why it has such a stranglehold on your well-being. Right? It's something that you've turned to. And so I just want you to understand that it could be any number of, of areas that you pursue. And the reason why you pursue them is because there is a small payoff. Each one of these things that we've gone after, they provide some momentary alleviation of our pain. They, they provide some small pleasure. There's some gratification. We've learned this. We've internalized it. And so we keep coming back to it again and again and again, and we can't stop. And we have to justify our behavior by telling ourselves certain things. So I want to go through. These are defense mechanisms that we use to justify our thoughts and behaviors. And it keeps us from avoiding the reality that in areas of our lives, we are out of control. More out of control than we want to admit. And so the first fill in there is the defense mechanism of minimization. And it's when you're saying, maybe even right now, oh, Mike, it's, it's not that bad, Right. Yeah, so you nailed me on a couple of things, but here's the deal. It's, it's, it's not that bad. And we pretend that our problems or these behaviors we go to are so small that they're insignificant. It's like that scene, if you ever saw European Vacation with, with Chevy Chase, where there's a biker that's been in a car accident. He says, oh, it's merely a flesh wound, you know. Meanwhile, he's hemorrhaging all over the family, right? It's, it's yeah, you're, you're hurting people around you. You're hurting people. Don't minimize it. The next defense mechanism is that of projection onto others. You know why I use, you know why I do this? It's because of this or this. It's because of you or you. This is also called the blame game. And it's been going on since the Garden of Eden, way back in the book of Genesis. Right? Adam is confronted by God on his sin, and Adam took it like a man. He blamed his wife. Okay? And that blame game has been happening ever since. And it's this blame game, this projection, which causes the abuser to say to the victim, you made me do that. You brought that on yourself. The next feeling is rationalization. And this is when we sort of put a percentage on our goodness. We say, you know what? I actually turned out pretty good considering my home life growing up. Or sure, I'm a mess, but I'm, I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? And so you find somebody who's worse than you are to compare yourself to, and you feel pretty good on the curve. Right? Although now that bin Laden's been taken care of, some of you are going to have to find someone else to compare yourself to. Right? We get this. The next one is intellectualization. And this is where we try to justify our actions as a result of something scientific or academic or medical. Uh, you know, I do the things I do because I have a chemical imbalance, etc. Uh, the next one is spiritual warfare. Where we say to ourselves, my actions and behavior result from demonic activity in my life. Now, I, I want to say, you know, there's, there are levels of truth probably to this, to the intellectualization, obviously. I, I do believe there's a spiritual battle that's going on. And I would even articulate that in weeks like this, as I'm prepping for a message like this one that goes after a level of honesty. 
and a level of just, you know, kind of vulnerability. We're stripping away some stuff here that I sense there is a deeper spiritual battle. I wrestle harder on weeks like this. So I, I, I get that. However, I want you to, to understand that, that we are more than willing enough to go down these roads of our own justification and pleasure. The devil often just needs to push us a little bit in that direction. We're the ones who provide the legwork for it. So again, spiritual warfare, it's a reality, but again, it's, it's not the only thing going on. Generalization is the next one. It's when we just compare ourselves in general to the state of things, you know? It's the win in Rome, do what the Romans do, right? It's the, yeah, sure, I drink a little bit too much now and then, but doesn't everyone? Or, you know, nobody's sexually pure these days. This is uh, the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas kind of a tactic, right? The next one is spiritualization. And, and maybe you've been told that if you just prayed enough, if you just read your Bible enough, if you just spoke in tongues or had these, uh, you know, gifts of God's Holy Spirit, that you would be free from hurts and habits and hangups. And, and again, those things are, they're powerful and they're incredible. And I'd love to have you pursue them, but they're not magic bullets, right? We need to do something more. There needs to be something that happens on a deep level with us. And, and so I would say this list of defense mechanisms literally goes on and on and on. But at some point, we have to choose whether or not we're going to face the truth or we're going to keep living in a fantasy world. Right? Whether or not we want to embrace the truth and then the hard work that goes with that truth or we just keep going as we're going and we don't deal with any of these issues. So actually, we found a video clip that we think paints this picture of the choice to accept the truth that faces all of us. So go ahead and watch this clip. I wish going to church was as cool as hanging out with Lawrence Fishburne. I really do. You know, it's just a picture of the choice, right? What do you want? Do you want to keep living how you're living? Do you want to keep... Being the God in your universe, taking care of the problems that you have with all these coping mechanisms that you've discovered, dealing with your pain, however you've already determined how to deal with your pain. Or are you ready to invite a level of honesty? Are you, are you ready to see the truth? What's the truth? The truth is that we're enslaved to all this stuff. That we're enslaved. We think we're God and we think we can solve our own problems and we think we can medicate our own pain and we go after these things again. And then we find them empty, but we keep going back to them again. We find them empty again and we keep going back to them again. Or we can be honest. We can invite Jesus to meet us in this moment. And so each week we're going to talk about a big truth or two. The big truth for today is that we need to realize I'm not God. I realize that I'm not God and I admit my powerlessness to control my tendency to do the wrong thing. I admit that my life's unmanageable. Now, that phrase might be too big for some of you. So if, if it helps, in parentheses after it, you can write, it's unmanageable in certain areas. Because some of you are very highly functioning. Some of you function very, very well in certain areas of your life, maybe in your family or maybe in your marriage or maybe in your career. Some of you have very high functionality in, in certain areas. So it's not that your life is unmanageable everywhere, although I know some of you and, and that's where you are. Uh, I, I, I'm just saying we recognize, right, that there are some areas in our life where we're a mess. 
And we're honest about that. And we're open about that before Jesus. In fact, Jesus says that that's actually good news to begin with. This verse from Jesus in Matthew 5, 3, he says, happy are those who know they're spiritually poor. And this is one of the most famous passages in all of scripture, Sermon on the Mount. Many of you memorize this uh, maybe at some point in your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But nobody really understands what that phrase means. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And it sounds great. I don't know what it means. This is what it means. Happy are those who realize they're spiritually poor. In other words, this entire journey of healing and health and restoration, it begins when we realize, hey, we're not God. We don't have everything that it takes. We have these areas of deep brokenness and deep need and deep dependency on something. And and we've been trying to fill it. We've been trying to stuff that void full and take care of ourselves. And we have failed. And Jesus says, congratulations. That's the best place you can be. Happy are those who are spiritually poor, who know that they're spiritually poor. In other words, who are no longer living in denial. And denial is when we just stiff arm the whole thing. We pretend we don't have habits and hangups. We don't have these these things that we go after again and again. And, And Jesus says, no, it's so liberating to admit that that." We're spiritually poor. We have need, right? And this is what the Bible says in Jeremiah 6. You can't heal a wound by saying it's not there. And so we confess this is a wound. This is where we are. This is our need. We want to break out of denial. And in case you you need just a little bit of of kind of context, there are some long-term results for continuing the pathway of living in denial. And I I put this on your notes in terms of an acrostic. The D in denial means that uh, it disables our feelings. That it numbs our emotional connection with others. It numbs how we feel and process life. We sear our soul when we continue to live in denial. And 2 Peter 2.19 says, They promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of destructive habits. For we are slaves of anything that has conquered us. And friends, that verse, it, it articulates so much of what's going on in our culture. Hey, just live free. Hey, just pursue this, pursue this. And, and all your pleasures, you know, go after it. No holds barred, no restraints at all. Meanwhile, they're enslaved to those very things that they say are freedom. And this disables our feelings. And it is possible, friends, to numb our souls. But it leaves us detached from life. It makes us the walking dead. The E in denial is energy lost. And if you want a depiction of energy lost, read Psalm 22. It's an incredible psalm. The Bible articulates this energy lost, no passion for life, no zest for living, no joy. Some of you are there right now. The end in denial, it negates our growth. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and following, it talks about our needing to be fed milk instead of solid food because we're not growing spiritually the way God designed us to grow. This might also be true in terms of your relationships. You're not growing relationally. Or maybe it's you're not maturing in your career. Uh, You're not maturing in responsibility. We call this adult adolescence, right? And it used to be that adolescence was so clearly defined as the teen years, 
right? But you were kind of out of adolescence when you're out of puberty and you're into college. And, but then, you know, the adolescence just kept creeping older and older. And so it went into the 20s, right? And then it just kept creeping older and older. Now you got like granddads getting tattoos, right? And, and, you know, trading in their wife of 50 years for two 25-year-olds. You know, like it's just, it's crazy stuff. This adolescence that grows and grows, right? We're, our growth is negated when we live in denial. The I stands for isolates us from God. It isolates us from God. And there's this incredible passage of scripture from 1 John chapter 1, which says, This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, that passage of scripture is so great. The invitation is that we would walk in the light. I used to misunderstand. I I used to think that walking in the light meant we had to walk in a sinless manner. But I, I read this again and again. I study this passage. What he's saying is walking in the light means walking in honesty. It means walking in vulnerability and accountability. And it, it means that when we stumble, when we fall, we confess, right? Because then it continues. It says when we sin, we confess our sin. And what happens? He's faithful and just. He cleanses us and forgives us. But if we pretend we have no sin, we live in denial. And we lie to ourselves and we lie to God. We're living in darkness, okay? It isolates us from God. The A in denial is it also alienates us in our relationships, creates distance in our relationships with spouse, with family members, with friends. Ephesians 4.25 in the message says, what this adds up to then is this, no more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. And the culmination is that this lengthens our pain. It lengthens our pain. And we continue to live in the very pain that we're seeking to alleviate. The most ironic thing that I know is that our culture is so broken that it actually rewards us for putting our pain on display. Recent example would be a guy that I don't want to pick on, uh, Charlie Sheen. And, and, and so here's a guy, and, and he, he's just going through a whirlwind. He's just falling apart. And yet he's hitting Twitter records, right? First guy to a million. First guy to two million followers. I think he's at three million followers now. People are fascinated by watching the show of him self-destruct. And so he's getting all this money, and he's getting all this acclaim, and he goes on this speaking tour, and it's, you know, it's, just, it's a spectacle. But the culture keeps throwing money at him, So he's going to keep walking that road. There's a payoff. Friends, I want to tell you that the payoff is short-lived. And that we don't have to live in denial anymore. It's a trap. The question is, how do we get free? We begin with the big truth. We realize I'm not God. We admit our tendencies, uh, that we're powerless, rather, to control our tendencies to do the wrong thing. And in adult, uh, uh, excuse me, in AA or Alcoholics Anonymous, this is referred to as step one. 
Okay, step one says we admit that we're powerless over our addictions and our compulsive behaviors and that life is unmanageable in some, some place. Right? That's what it looks like. And so I would simply encourage you to, to be there, to take that first step, to accept that big truth. And it's called many, many things. You might call it uh, stepping out of denial. You might call it in revival language that we admit that we are a sinner in need of God's grace. You might also call this a moment of clarity. That's what the video called it. It's also called hitting bottom. It's called coming to the end of ourself. It's called many things. I would call it be, be, excuse me, becoming honest with God. Being honest with God. And the scripture says this again in the message, Psalm 51, 17. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart shattered lives ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. And so like I said, no perfect people allowed. Or as Pastor Drew, our Celebrate Recovery pastor says, if you're a Christian, you're in recovery. Because that's simply the process of sanctification. And so the challenge over Lake is that we would stop playing church and we would start being the church. See, God already knows our condition. He already knows where we are and he wants us to be honest about it as well. And if you're here and you're struggling, if if, if what I'm talking about rings true deeply in you and you're wrestling with something, just hear that as a good thing because it means that God already has your heart. And he's already calling you into honesty. He's already calling you into a place of health and forgiveness. And so I'd love to close with some action steps. And I put these in the first person because I want to challenge you to own these steps. The first is that you would stop denying the pain and stop playing God. Stop denying the the pain, stop playing God. In other words, recognize that you're unable to do what only God can do for you. You've tried to heal your pain. You've gone after all sorts of other coping mechanisms. This is the recognition that you need God. Psalm 6, 2 and 3 says, Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? The next step is that we start admitting my powerlessness. Start admitting your powerlessness. Pastor Rick Warren used to say for years, if you could have changed, you would have changed already. If it was in your power to change, you would have changed already. Friends, there are all sorts of things that drive you crazy about you. And if you don't think there is anything about you that's driving you crazy, make a list of all the things about your spouse that's driving you crazy. And I promise you, it's the same list, okay? Because you're just projecting onto them what already drives you crazy about you. And if you could have changed, if you could have fixed yourself, you would have fixed yourself. You can't fix yourself. You need God to fix you. Okay. So stop playing God. Start admitting that you're powerless in these areas. And then start admitting the unmanageability of certain areas of your life. And I don't know what it looks like for you. And I'm trying to keep this broad stroke enough to where every single one of us can apply something. After the service, there were three or four people that came up, prayed with several. and, and, And each one had a different issue. Right? Each one came up with a different need that their pain had caused them to proceed towards something else that was broken. They were all different. 
Friends, you're going to be different. You're going to be unique, right, in how you have processed these realities. But the truth is God knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what area of your life is unmanageable, and he wants to meet you there. He wants to meet you there. Psalm 40:12 says, For troubles surround me, too many to count. My sins pile up so high, I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I have lost all courage. And so we want to begin with this admission, this recognition, right, that we are in need. And this is the first step. This allows us to be honest before Jesus. It allows Jesus to meet us. This is the step that recognizes my worth is not based upon my pretense of perfection. It's not based upon the mask I show to the world. Friends, your worth is not based upon how many Facebook friends you have or how attractive your Facebook page looks. Your worth is based upon the grace of Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross of Calvary. It's Jesus who meets you in grace. As long as you don't need anything, you exclude yourself from his grace. But the moment you recognize your need, you're ready to receive it. And I say all this because I want to be very, very clear. You don't clean yourself up so that you can earn God's love. He's already poured his love out on you. Now, we we become honest before God so that we can actually receive it. And so behind me on the stage, you'll see a door. And it's a nondescript door. But we wanted this to represent for you something we'll unpack more next week. This is the door that Jesus meets us at. The Bible talks about Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts. He's meeting us at the door with his grace. And he's knocking and he's asking us to open the door. And as long as you keep the door closed on this side of the door, the message that you're saying to Jesus is this. I don't need anything. I'm fine on my own. Things are good just how they are. I've got it all together. Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus. But if you open the door, you have to recognize what's on the other side. You open the door, and by opening the door, the message you're saying is, I need you, Lord Jesus. The the, the message you're saying is, I need your grace. I need your love. I need your forgiveness. And Jesus is meeting us at the door. And friends, this is the door to life. And this is the door to wholeness. And this is the door to freedom. And it's the door to honesty. It's the door to fearless living. It's the door to joy and transparency. Friends, this is the door to authentic relationships. In so many ways, this is the door to sanity. And Jesus invites us to open it. So Overlake, I just want to paint the picture for you. Are you ready to open the door? Overlake, are we ready to walk through the door to meet Jesus and all of the grace that he has for us? Next week, what we're gonna explore is what that looks like in a message called More Hope. And I simply wanna tell you that there is more hope than you can possibly imagine. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for knocking at the door of our heart right now. We thank you for meeting us with your grace. We thank you for purchasing more hope for us than we can imagine. And Jesus, we do just confess, just collectively we confess that there are these areas of our life
that are a mess. Unmanageable, the behaviors that we keep going back to, the thought processes we keep, you know, if I could just this, if I could earn this, if I could just achieve this. Lord, you know all of the junk. And so God, we just, we don't have any pretense before you. We're humble and we're real. And we ask that you would look down through the facade and through the pain. We ask that you'd look down to the, to the very place of our deep wound. And Jesus, we, we admit that we are powerless, that we are in need of your touch. And it's in this place of vulnerability and honesty before you, Jesus, that we are desperate to hear your words. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And so we, we say thank you for your sufficiency and thank you for your grace. We ask that you would give us the courage to open the door and to walk on this journey humbly with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.